Okay, here we go. Well, this is the end of a long and grueling Cato University. You've all earned the money we paid you to come. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's been a great pleasure for me to be here, and uh, I know that you are looking forward to uh, uh, an end of the, the end of the day and getting some refreshments. I think you have one thing after me, um, Cato Scholars Panel. Well, that'll be fun. Panels are always fun. Uh, so this is going to be your last heavy-duty, heavyweight uh, talk, but it's kind of a fun talk. I kind of like, I do like this talk. I wrote it uh, for this conference as well as for the, the new uh, afterword for my book, The Structure of Liberty. Um, and that has to do with the modesty of uh, libertarianism. In fact, it's called the modesty of radical libertarianism, but for some reason the Cato Institute doesn't like that phraseology, so, because they're just moderates themselves. So it's just it's the modesty of libertarianism. Um, the modesties of, of radical libertarian, I mean, libertarians are portrayed as radicals. Uh, and in a sense, it's accurate to, to, to portray libertarians as radicals. The, the three senses of the term radical could each be said to characterize libertarianisms. And I'm now taking this from the Oxford uh, English Dictionary. First meaning of radical is relating to or affecting the fundamental nature of something, far-reaching or thorough. Second meaning of radical, characterized by departure from tradition innovative or progressive. Third meaning of radical, relating to the root of something. Libertarians do make claims about the fundamental nature of things and strive to be thorough in the application of their principles. Libertarian policies are often a departure from tradition. Libertarians do strive to go to the root of how society should be structured, and they claim that root to be liberty. However, if by radical one really actually means extreme, which is how it often is what is meant, then libertarianism, I believe, is the opposite of radical. In this talk, I'm going to explain why libertarianism today is actually a far more modest political approach than that of either the social justice crowd on the left or the legal moralists on the right. Indeed, the more radical a libertarian you are, the more modest a position you advocate as compared with these two extremes. And they truly are extreme, if taken seriously. So let me begin by defining what I mean by social justice and legal moralism. The social justice crowd holds some version of the view that everyone is entitled to some quantum of stuff. And if they don't have whatever it is a particular social justice theorist thinks they ought to have, then we need a coercive government with the power to take from those who have this stuff and give it to those who don't. Now, this sometimes also entails, or is claimed, that no one should have any or too much more stuff than anyone else. But whether the standard is absolute, how much stuff we have, or relative or comparative, how much stuff we have relative to somebody else, Social justice consists of everybody having whatever they are supposed to have according to the advocate of social justice. Now, there are at least three fundamental problems associated with this position. First is, there is no single or salient answer to what everybody is supposed to have. Almost everyone who advocates for social justice has either a different view of this or actually more commonly in my experience, no firm view that they are willing to articulate. For example, try asking someone who says that the rich are not paying their fair share of taxes. You say, okay, what is the fair share? You will either get a blank look 
or a single word answer, which all of you know what this word is. What is the amount that the rich should be paying? One, two, three. More. More. More than they are today. Whatever the rich, whatever the well-off are paying, they should be paying more. Whatever the less-off have, they should have more. How much more? We're not saying. Just more. Right, that's their position. More. Actually, I'm reminded, this is the first time I've ever told this little anecdote. When I was a little kid, like a baby, um, I thought the word for water was more. <laughs> because my mom would say, if she'd give me some water, she'd go, do you want more? And I would say, yeah, I want some more. I'd go, do you want more? So actually, I actually thought the word for water was more. So maybe that's what they're really all about. They just think everybody ought to have water. Now, this lack of specificity... I've never told that story publicly before. This lack of specificity makes crafting actual policies extremely unstable. There simply is no core position around which any political consensus may be formed. There's no identifiable limit beyond which the policy of redistribution can be deemed unjust. In the absence of consensus, whatever policy may actually be implemented is therefore politically unstable. Only the subgroup who favors the prevailing plan will be satisfied that social justice is being done. No matter how much redistribution of income or wealth is adopted, there will always be cries for more or different forms, which will greatly undermine the security of everyone's possessions and the ability to plan their lives. And then there are the many who will persist in, object, in objecting to using force to achieve social justice, those troublemakers, um, and all of this is not a recipe for a peaceful and contented society. A second problem with social justice is that achieving any particular pattern of distribution will require a highly intrusive government administrative mechanism. Some subset of society is going to have to have special powers to collect the information on everyone's wealth or income, depending on if wealth is what's got to be the problem or income is the problem. This is not some accidental occurrence that can somehow be avoided. It is absolutely necessary to know from who to take the wealth and to whom to give it according to the approved pattern of social justice. Collecting this information will necessarily be privacy invasive. And the existence of a database with such information can easily lead to the intimidation of dissidents. Third, a final, final and third problem was identified most prominently by Robert Nozick in the book Anarchy, State, and Utopia. Whatever level of redistribution is adopted will require the continual use of force to achieve and maintain it over time. The natural outcome of liberty will inevitably destroy whatever pattern of holdings is adopted as the socially just one. In addition to collecting the relevant information to discover how actual holdings differ from this pattern, some subset of persons is going to have to be empowered to use force to continually adjust holdings so they conform. These three fundamental problems lead to the following mega problem with social justice policies. Any institution powerful enough to gather this information and enforce this pattern will be highly intrusive and enormously dangerous. Not only will it have the exceptional power to violate the background rights that libertarians advocate as the prerequisite for pursuing happiness in a social context, it will also have the power to deviate from the pattern favored by any particular social justice theorist. These institutions of coercion may adopt a different vision of social justice or other ends entirely that violate the conception of social justice favored by any given proponent of social justice. 
And given that there is no uniquely salient pattern of distribution, the highly contested nature of social justice makes the potential for abuse of power even greater. That one cannot prove one's conception is the right one makes a perpetual struggle to control uh, the institutions of coercion inevitable. Unless dissenters are somehow suppressed and eliminated, which historically is what happens to dissidents in societies that are committed to social justice. It is not enough, therefore, for social justice advocates to identify a uniquely salient pattern of holdings they, um, as the socially just one, though this is essential and has yet to be delivered. They must also identify the, so the structural features of a legal system that can assure the pattern that they think is just, and only that pattern that they think is just will be adopted. And that the powers required to monitor and perpetuate the just pattern will not be captured or abused to the detriment of social justice, to the detriment of their own vision of social justice. All right, that's social justice. Now what about legal moralism? Legal moralists focus their attention not on how much stuff each person has, but on how each person ought to act when living his or her life. Each person should behave just the way legal moralists believe he or she should behave or be sanctioned by law. Legal moralists have a comparable set of problems. Indeed, we can simply port over much of the above analysis of social justice to the problem of legal moralism. Like social justice proponents, legal moralists disagree amongst themselves about the correct set of moral behaviors. Now, of course, all legal moralists would maintain that acts like murder, rape, robbery, and theft, which violate the rights of others, should be banned, a belief they share in common with libertarians. That's actually me. I thought I'd turn that off. So let me just back up and say that again. Of course, all legal moralists would maintain that acts like murder, rape, robbery, and theft, which violate the rights of others, should be banned, a belief they share in common with libertarians. For this reason, to preserve the distinction between libertarianism, which believes those should be banned, and legal moralism, it's important to distinguish between justice, which consists of prohibiting wrongful conduct that violate the rights of others, and morality or ethics, which evaluates the full gamut of human action to distinguish good from bad conduct. So this is, to some degree, um, uh, this is a semantic distinction, but it's a substantive one as well. We can, use, we can reserve the term justice to talk about the violation of the rights of others, and an injustice is to violate the rights of others. And then we can use the term ethics or morality to discuss all, the full panoply of how we ought to live our lives, how we ought to behave, how we ought to act, beyond the basic requirements of justice. All libertarians and most everyone else believes that force is justified to prohibit unjust or wrongful behavior. But legal moralists would extend the use of force to reach some or all immoral or unethical conduct as well. But while the consensus that murder, rape, robbery, and theft are wrongful and may be legally forbidden is widespread, indeed I would claim it's universal, there is no comparable consensus on how all people ought to act or, what, or which moral code should be imposed on a society. Even, but even assuming some uniquely salient moral code was identified, like social justice advocates, legal moralists require a powerful and intrusive set of legal institutions to gather information on how everyone is behaving in public and in private 
to detect whether they are behaving morally or not. Any institution that's powerful enough to do that is susceptible to enormous abuse. And this potential for abuse is even greater than it would be if there was a uniquely salient moral code that was capable of being identified so those who held power could be confined to those identifiable limits. If there is no identifiable limit, then when they start exercising their power, it's going to be hard to call them on it. Now, when confronted with, by these inherent and fundamental problems with their positions, both social justice advocates and legal moralists tend to offer the same response. And that response is democracy. We just let people vote on either the correct pattern of distribution or the correct moral code or both. But this simply avoids the issue. It doesn't solve it. Although majority rule might arrive at some outcome, given the contested nature of both concepts of social justice and legal moralism, it's not likely to be a stable outcome as winners will continually have to fend off losers. And that assumes, of course, that democracy is maintained after the first vote, which is typically not the case in countries pursuing either social justice or legal moralist agenda. That's usually one vote, and then you're done. More fundamentally, how exactly is majority rule supposed to arrive at the correct answer to either social justice or morality? What sort of arguments about the right outcome are political advocates even going to make? Would a legislative debate, um, what would a legislative debate about the right distribution or correct morality look like beyond a mere assertion of one's conclusion in the form of one's vote? I mean, just imagine what this debate's going to look like. It's hard to imagine it. In short, what exactly makes the majority's vote on any given day the right outcome? by the standard of either social justice or legal moralism. It's an outcome, that's true, but why is it the right outcome? If there's no assurance that a majority or group of, of a group of individuals who are denominated legislators or representatives or a majority of the body of the public as a whole voting in referenda or initiatives will vote for the right outcome, then how exactly is democracy the solution to the problem of the radical indeterminacy of the social justice and legal moralist perspectives. Far from being a solution to the problem of arriving at the right conception of social justice or legal morality then, the appeal to democracy either disguises or merely restates the problem in another form. In the end, both social justice and legal moralism assume what you might call a God's eye view of either how all physical resources in a given society should be allocated or how all persons should behave in their personal and private lives, or possibly, if you're a real totalitarian, both. Indeed, one could easily conclude that social justice proponents and legal moralists are simply substituting a secular government for God to create their own version of heaven on earth. But this project is simply beyond the capacity of the actual human beings we must rely upon to devise and implement such a scheme. Hypothesizing about the demos does not even seriously address, much less solve, this problem. Moreover, because both social justice and legal moralist visions are comprehensive approaches to social arrangements, they have basically claim everything about everything, any preferred position is necessarily implies the rejection of all competing positions. They're not compatible with each other. This is the right one. That means this is the wrong one. 
To adopt any one pattern of distribution is to reject all con uh, competing patterns. To adopt any one moral code is to reject all alternative moral codes. Not only do the comprehensive natures of both approaches make them inherently unstable, as those who favor alternative conceptions continue to agitate for their view of justice or morality, but this very instability has historically engendered highly coercive and often brutal measures to suppress dissent from the prevailing position. Whether enforced brutally or not, however, every loser of this perpetual struggle must be forced to live their life in a regime he or she takes to be unjust or immoral. The inevitable result of this dynamic is a Hobbesian war of all against all. Now, the recognition of these problems is as old as liberalism itself. Indeed, the origin of classical liberalism and libertarianism can be traced to the devastating consequences of religious wars during which comprehensive religious views fought violently against each other. And, and when you think about it, why shouldn't contending religions take up arms against their rivals? If eternal salvation is at stake, and salvation requires living in a society in which others all believe accordingly, why should not religion be fought over to the death? Nor has this stance been eradicated from modernity. As we see today, radical Islamist jihad that is gaining steam in large parts of the world, both in its deadliest form and in its drive to adopt Sharia law in democratic societies, is then coercively imposed on believers and non-believers alike. The classical liberal solution to the problem of religious wars was called religious toleration, the view that matters of conscience were matters of individual choice. Think about that. Matters of conscience are matters of individual choice. Notwithstanding that one's eternal soul might be at stake, those, these proto-liberals contended that it was better for individuals to be free to choose their religions than to adopt a comprehensive one religion for all policy that led to perpetual and deadly domestic and foreign strife. Those favoring religious toleration need not, and in fact did not, deny that one religion was right and the rest were wrong. In other words, they were not what we might call religious relativists. Indeed, they were, they, instead, they just needed to recognize that identifying the one true religion was sufficiently contestable as to make the imposition of one religion on everybody a highly unstable and destructive approach to social ordering. Even from the point of view of religious truth, while the best outcome might be to have one's own true religion imposed on others, the worst outcome was to have another's false religion imposed on you. Everyone's second best outcome, therefore, was to be free to exercise their, his or her own religion, which makes that policy the most stable policy and most conducive to social peace and harmony. For this reason, rather than have one religion imposed coercively by a monarch, the liberal solution to religious strife was for each individual to be considered the king or sovereign of his own conscience. By the way, this, this required a modification of religion itself to accommodate. And that's why Western religions, in their modified form, are different than all comprehensive, a comprehensive religion like radical Islam, which doesn't take this liberal turn. And it hasn't been sufficiently moder uh, modified 
to enable it to coexist with other religions the way the Western religions eventually were by liberals. So each one of us is to be considered the king or queen or sovereign of our own conscience. This is pretty radical stuff. Each individual was to live side by side with other sovereign individuals of their own of their conscience. The way monarchs of countries under the Treaty of Westphalia were supposed to live in peace with their neighbors and refrain from forcibly interfering with the internal affairs of other sovereign monarchs. That's what we are under this vision. We are each the kings and queens of us. For Westphalian monarchical sovereignty to work, however, the geographical borders within which each monarch was free to decide on his own internal domestic policies without outside interference must be identifiable and established. You must have borders, jurisdictions. By the same token, the individual sovereignty entailed by religious toleration requires the identification and establishment of boundaries within which individuals have jurisdiction to choose how to worship. In sum, the liberal solution to the Hobbesian war of all against all created by comprehensive religious claims was not to posit a sovereign monarch or leviathan to settle on one true religion for everybody. That's the problem. That's the source of religious wars itself. That belief had to be rejected. But instead, to shift the conception of sovereignty over religious belief and exercise from the monarch to the individual person with his or her own conscience. Building upon this insight, the Lockean jurisdictional solution to the social strife created by the comprehensive religious claims, by comprehensive religious claims, came gradually to be adopted to handle even lesser conflicts over mere moral disagreements. Mere moral disagreements are a lot less than the big thing about what religion you should have. That's the big question. If you're going to decentralize that question, then that same approach might actually work for lesser questions. Just as the jurisdiction of sovereign monarchs is limited to their respective geographical territories, the jurisdiction of sovereign individuals is limited to their bodies and their justly acquired physical possessions. As in international relations, force is justified to keep everyone within their boundaries, but so long as they are operating within their respective jurisdictions and not invading the rightful jurisdiction or domains of others, individuals should be free to make their own moral choices. The more decisions are viewed as matters of individual sovereignty, the more libertarian this approach becomes. Indeed, modern libertarianism can simply be viewed as the push to see how many different types of decisions can feasibly be delegated into the realm of individual sovereignty. The debate between libertarians and others, and among libertarians themselves, is precisely how far this process of delegation can be taken. It is inaccurate to characterize this argument for delegation as premised on some atomistic individualism that assumes that each man is an island independent of others in society, any more than did Westphalian monarchical sovereignty assume atomistic nation states. To the contrary, what is sought are the prerequisites of peaceful social coexistence in a world in which each person's actions are very much likely to affect others. As with contending nation states, social conflict and interdependence are the issue, is the issue to be solved rather than denied by recognition of individual sovereignty. So, by now it should be clear that modern libertarianism merely takes individual sovereignty seriously. 
and tries to push this concept as far as it can feasibly go. For libertarians, as for Locke, private property is the concept that defines the proper jurisdiction of each sovereign person who is sui juris or competent to manage his or her own affairs. And freedom of contract governs the transfers of these property rights from one person to another. If you think about it, private property is simply analogous to the, to the territories of states, and freedom of contract is simply analogous to the ability of sovereigns to enter into treaties or agreements with other sovereigns. That's all they are. They are our exercise of individual sovereignty relative, which is just patterned after what monarchical sovereignty is. Liberty for a libertarian, then, is not the Hobbesian freedom to do whatever one wills or wants or desires. Instead, it is the Lockean freedom to do whatever one wills with what's yours. There is simply no libertarianism without jurisdictional limits on freedom of action. And libertarians sometimes have a hard time realizing that. We are not for unlimited freedom. Unlimited freedom was what Hobbes was for. And then he was against it. He posited unlimited freedom as the state of nature. And then he posited the need for the Leviathan to constrain freedom because unlimited freedom would lead to chaos. We're not for unlimited freedom. We're for Lockean liberty. Lockean liberty involves limits. It involves jurisdictions. It involves domains. Libertarian is distinctive in its attempt to limit coercion to the protection of these jurisdictional boundaries to the greatest extent feasible. Forcible interference by some with the liberty that is within the sovereign jurisdiction of others is as offensive to libertarianism as the unprovoked forcible interference of one national sovereign within the boundaries of another is offensive to the prevailing view of international relations. It's really the same principles. Now, however radical this may sound in the abstract, it is actually a far more modest approach than either social justice or legal moralism. Although the line between mine and thine must be drawn, doing so is far more practical than specifying the morality of the entire gamut of human action. Although rules and principles governing the just acquisition, use, and transfer of property must be identified, this is far more manageable and less divisive and dangerous a task than continually readjusting the distribution of holdings, suppressing the acquisition of property altogether, or identifying a stable principle of fair share. Moreover, because proponents of social justice and legal moralism typically propose superimposing their schemes on top of existing structures of private property and freedom of contract, rather than supplanting them altogether, these stances, their stances, are necessarily more ambitious than simply limiting legal coercion to the libertarian core that must still be determined under their approach. Put another way, no matter how challenging the task may be of, of properly defining the proper jurisdictions of individual sovereigns, Adding additional considerations of social justice or legal moralism to that task makes it even more challenging, necessarily. In this, in this sense, libertarianism is necessarily more modest than either social justice or legal moralism, as long as they don't propose to abolish private property and contract altogether. Okay, now, what about the social democracies of Western Europe? or the now expanding social welfare state in the United States. Don't these political systems combine the individual sovereignty of private property with the redistribution of social justice, as well as some degree of legal moralism? Don't these represent the true middle ground 
or what was once called the third way, between an unconstrained system of either social justice or legal moralism on the one hand and the unconstrained liberty of libertarianism on the other. If these types of political arrangements are feasible, does this not undermine the libertarian objection to social justice, legal moralism, or both? Now, in some ways, I think the answer to this question is yes. Superimposing a degree of wealth or income redistribution or morals legislation on a robust base of private property is infinitely preferable to the radical single-minded pursuit of either social justice or legal moralism. But that resp this response to the case for libertarianism, this objection to libertarianism, is actually a major concession to libertarianism rather than an actual objection. For it concedes that libertarian principles of property provide the necessary baseline upon which some less than complete scheme of redistribution or, or morals regulation should be superimposed. It concedes the justness of what we're for while saying there needs to be more. Moreover, advocates of social democracy assume the feasibility of this alternative to defining legal coercion to the protection of confining legal coercion to the protection of individual sovereignty. But what if this approach really isn't feasible? What if it's infeasible? What if superimposing social justice or legal moralism on the individual sovereignty defined by private property and freedom of contract is ultimately unstable? Why might that be? Perhaps institutions with sufficient power to effectuate social justice or to impose morality will inevitably be captured by the more powerful forces in society and put to other ends. Perhaps they will inevitably be used for a purpose that does not conform to the proper conception of social justice and morality. After all, as I've already noted, what realistic assurances have we ever been given that such a power can be limited to whatever theory is being advanced to justify its creation? What happens in a social democracy when 51% of the voters discover it can vote to redistribute the wealth or impose their moral vision upon the other 49%? Or really more likely, what political entrepreneurs and um, what, when, what happens when political entre entrepreneurs inspire, say, 80% of the electorate to confiscate the income or wealth of the 20%? When that happens, how will social democracy preserve the individual sovereignty that the third way approach concedes is needed as a baseline? What realistic mechanisms are proposed by advocates of the third way to ensure against that outcome? Now, I've been teaching law and writing about liberty for over 30 years, and I have yet to hear any such proposal from any of my colleagues. It would be genuinely enlightening to hear proponents of liberal social democracy tell us how it will not eventually devour the individual rights that provide the foundation for their additional schemes of redistribution or morals regulation. But is that not a reasonable request to ask of them? In contrast, libertarians do offer a solution or two to the problem of limiting government power to the protection of individual sovereignty. Like their classical liberal ancestors, most libertarians, most modern libertarians, favor constitutionally limited government in which power is structurally divided amongst different branches of the federal or national government and between the limited powers of the national government and the broader police powers of states and municipalities. In short, these libertarians favor something very much like, if not identical to, 
the original meaning of the Constitution of the United States, the whole Constitution, including the parts that protect the unenumerated rights retained by the people and the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. Other libertarians, having observed the continued decline of respect for the Constitution's limits on state and federal power, favor a more radical alternative. They would see law enforcement and adjudication be, handed over, be handled competitively rather than by monopolistic government agencies. They favor consumer choice and competition as the best check on the abuse of the powers of law enforcement. If you want to see how that kind of system might look, you can look at my, you can check out part three of my book, The Structure of Liberty, where I describe the operation of a polycentric legal order, what's called a polycentric legal order, meaning many centers, not monocentric, not single center. In contrast with, in contrast with advocates of social justice um, or legal moralism then, libertarians and their classical liberal forebearers have paid considerable attention to how government can be limited to the protection of the rights defining individual sovereignty that libertarians favor. However persuasive their responses to this problem may be, they cannot be accused of ignoring it or treating it with less than the seriousness that this problem deserves. In the end, there emerges a fundamental contrast between social justice and legal moralism on the one hand and libertarianism on the other. Advocates of social justice and legal moralism are concerned with ends to the exclusion of any serious consideration of means. Think about that. Ends only, not means. All persons should have X amount of stuff. All persons should act or refrain from acting in certain ways. In addition to a failure to, achieve, to reach anything close to consensus about these things, even among themselves, on what the end should be, what is principally lacking is any serious attention to the means by which one's favored end will be achieved and how the coercive institutions will be limited just to the correct ends without being perverted to pursue other ends that are deemed by any particular social justice or legal moralist to be unjust and immoral. In contrast, libertarianism is concerned almost exclusively with means rather than with ends. Even the fundamental rights of private property and freedom of contract that principally define liberty are conceived by libertarians as means to the pursuit of happiness while living in society with others, rather than as ends in themselves. To be sure, the protection of these rights is treated as the end of government. It is the end of government, the purpose of government but only because government itself is perceived by many libertarians as a regrettably necessary means of protecting property and contract. Now, of course, libertarians are seriously concerned with one end, the end of living a good life, or what the Declaration referred to as the pursuit of happiness. It is this end that motivates their commitment to such means as private property, freedom of contract, and constitutionally limited government. But as I've already described, most libertarians believe that liberty is necessary precisely because the end of happiness will vary with the uniquely varying circumstances, goals, and aspirations of particular individuals. And because living the good life, as my teacher Henry Veach once said, is a do-it-yourself affair. 
Nobody can do it for you. If you just do everything you're supposed to do because somebody commands you to do it, that will not make you a virtuous person. Virtuous people are people who do it habitually because they've internalized that into their, what you might call their second nature. Not their first nature, but their second nature, their acquired nature. Real world experience they maintain, we libertarians maintain, has demonstrated that government implementation of either social justice or legal moralism has led to dystopias almost beyond our ability to imagine. In contrast, even an imperfect commitment to private individual rights and limited constitutional government has led to the greatest prosperity in human history. Now, of course, none of this is easy to prove. If it were, libertarianism would have either vanquished its intellectual foes or have been defeated by them already. But consider what may be, may be the ultimate empirical proof of the superiority of even imperfectly adhering to libertarian principles. Which way do the refugees go? Which countries need to restrict the exit of their citizens? Were people clamoring to get into or out of the USSR? Were people, are people lined up to enter the molacracy, the molacracy of Iran? To the extent that people can, people vote with their feet for the increased prosperity made possible by the more robust protection of property as compared with other competing governmental systems. Persons who are capable of relocating tend to leave societies preoccupied by the pursuit of social justice or legal morality and beat a path to the door of societies who pursue some semblance of the libertarian way. As empirical proofs go, this one is probably as good as any other. Now, of course, given that there is no truly libertarian society, this is a comparative matter. Which societies protect the rights of property and contract better than others? But in the end, this too is why libertarianism is modest. Libertarians posit their models of complete liberty as a means of incrementally inching existing societies step by step in a more libertarian direction, incrementally. Libertarians believe that good things will happen as this progress is made. And if we should ever reach the point where the protection of property rights and freedom of contract is having a counterproductive effect, we can stop there. In the meantime, we have a long way to go before we reach that point. Or so say libertarians, with all due modesty. Thanks. Okay. Uh, by this clock, we have about 36 minutes for questions and discussions. And we could talk about this, talk about the Constitution. This is our last chance to talk, talk about libertarianism generally. Uh, there's quite a, there's a good, there's a very, considering the abstract and broad nature of the talk I gave, there's a very good chance that I won't have answers to your questions, because um, I am not an expert on everything, uh, which, which is what you have to be to be an expert on liberty, because liberty applies to everything, right? Um, but I can try, and at the, at the very minimum, we can have a discussion, and other people can maybe chime in. But I don't see a rush of people lining up to the microphones. I think you guys have all been beaten into submission. <laughs> I'll do it.
Okay, you are? Uh, Price Morgan from Los Angeles, California. From Los Angeles, California. Sunny California. Yes. And uh, not quite as sunny as here. But uh, anyway, so you were, uh, you were talking about these legal moralists and, and social justice institutions that can be perverted to become you know, used for other purposes that might not have been right. their original intention. Uh, what are some prime examples of that happening in history? Say I'm talking to some social justice warriors and I want to use this as an example. Um, I would say just point to any example. I mean, any time where you have um, either one comprehensive view or another comprehensive view being imposed. I mean, the Soviet Union was attempting to impose a socialistic paradise. Didn't turn out that way. And in fact, the, uh, the, the Communist Party got privileges that the ordinary people did not get in a supposedly e egalitarian country. And the higher up you were in the party, the more such privileges you got. It was far from egalitarian. Um, and we can just you know look at places where there was uh, the lack of religious toleration, then you have people being tormented and tortured and forced to confess their heresies. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I would think that th those examples wouldn't be that hard to generate. Cool. Yes. Hi, Adrian Sevilla uh, from San Diego. Uh, first, I just wanted to thank you for all of your uh, talks and all the lectures and all the other Very scholars welcome. as well. Thanks. Um, you spoke in another uh, lecture about the Commerce Clause and uh, how Congress has perhaps overreached there and that the Supreme Court has generally upheld it. Uh, but could you speak a little bit about the spending clause and how that has also been used uh, to right. encroach? Well, there is no actual spending clause, as you know. Um, there is a clause that gives Congress the power to tax for the general welfare. Um, and um, there were two competing visions of what that clause was supposed to make, and this, this, these competing visions go all the way back to the founding. Um, so Congress has the power to raise taxes in order to provide for the general welfare. Um, can't, does that mean they can spend money on anything that would provide for the general welfare that they've taxed money for, or can they only spend money to pursue the enumerated objects that are otherwise listed in the list of powers that Congress has, like the regulation of commerce or the pursuance of treaties. So the Madisonian position was money had to be money was only being raised as a necessary and proper means of executing the other of the, the particular powers and not for anything in particular. The Hamiltonian vision of this was that money could be spent for anything that would secure the common good or the, the general welfare, like, for example, public improvement. So that is where this controversy first arose. It was over whether it was OK for um, uh, the Congress to spend money on what was called internal improvements. So if you want to think of an internal improvement, think of a canal, the construction of a canal. There's nothing in the, in the particular uh, um, uh, enumerated powers that gives Congress the power to establish a canal. And yet they have a spending power. They have, they have the power to raise money. Can they spend money on a canal? Uh, and so that is the debate that goes all the way back to the beginning. And I mean, I would like to believe that the Madisonians are right. I know Roger Pallon of the Cato Institute strongly believes that the Madisonian position is the correct one. I would like that to be true. I don't know for, for a fact that it's true. I haven't actually uh, studied it with sufficient depth that I could be completely committed to one of these as opposed to another. And, but I would point this out. Any dispute this fundamental that goes all the way back to the founding may not actually have an answer that is uncontroversial or uncontestable. 
many of the answer questions that we, 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 we addressed, like did the Second Amendment address an individual right to keep and bear arms or not, they can be answered. It's, and in fact, it's either one way or the other. It can't be both. And, there, and the evidence is almost entirely on one side and against the other. If you have a debate that's happening at the time and that both sides are arguing at the time, it may actually be an ambiguity in the Constitution that there is no original meaning to discover, in which case you have to, ha you can, you have to handle it you know, by means of rules of law. Thank you. One other, but, but, this is, but here's another thing. The, the spending power question, regardless of what you think of the spending power, um, the spending power question actually does alleviate, takes a lot of pressure off of libertarians and what we are for when we advocate the return to the enumerated power scheme. Because much of what the government does, it doesn't do under its regulatory powers, its power to regulate commerce. Much of what it does, it does under its spending powers. And so if it does have a spending power, then that's constrained by how much money it can collect and how much money it can spend. And that's a separate question than how it regulates our liberties. When I argue in the end of our Republican Constitution, the judges should be evaluating laws to see if they are rational or arbitrary. I'm saying they should evaluate laws that regulate liberty for whether that regulation of liberty is irrational or arbitrary. That's not saying anything about how money can be spent. That's saying how liberty can be re regulated. So I think it's really important for libertarian legal theorists and constitutional theorists to distinguish between the power to regulate our conduct, to tell us what we must do, and the power to tax you and spend your money in some way. Now, I realize, taken to an extreme, the power to tax is the power to destroy. I get that. But at some time less than that extreme, there's a qualitative difference between the power to tax and the power to make you do something. And if you don't believe that, you then, then think about the difference between a military draft which takes you and throws you into the army and says you must defend the country and attacks on you to pay for soldiers who are going to do it instead. If that's not a qualitative difference, I don't know what a qualitative difference looks like. And even though one, you know, the second of these options could be objectionable for a variety of reasons, it's not objectionable for the same reason as pulling you out and putting you in uniform is. So there's a difference between regulating liberty and spending money. If you go, and the debate that you were raising about the spending clause is a debate that exists at the federal level. Is the federal taxation power limited by the enumerated powers of Congress? It does not exist at the state level, which have general powers to, you know, to protect the general welfare of the states. And in those cases, there is no constitutional problem therefore, with the use of tax money to provide assistance to people, to provide redistributive schemes. So redistribution is constitutional at the state level. It may not be constitutional at the federal level. It may not be, but it, that's the debate. But, it, but that's only a debate over at which level of government can do it. But under this scheme, local state governments can tax money and redistribute it if they wish to. We may be against it as a libertarians. We may be against them doing that. We may be for it, but we may be against it. But that just goes to show that the Constitution is not a perfectly libertarian document, and we do not read our libertarianism into it. We take it as we find it. And at the state level, there's a difference between regulating liberty, which I believe should be limited to laws that are not irrational or arbitrary, and taxing and spending money to provide for people in the ways that, for example, you heard last night, the need to take into account the fact that some people don't do as well as others, that may be proper, it may be improper, it may be good or bad, but it's constitutional. Yes? Hi, I, I think there's a pattern here. I'm the third Californian in a row. Oh, right. Well, you guys are just bolder than the rest of us. <laughs> I guess. I'm Tessa Jules, and my question is whether you see Sharia law as being... 
consistent with rule of law in the United States if it were practiced here? Well, it's not any more so. Uh, it's funny, funny. I just gave a luncheon talk on the book at the Hudson Institute here in town, and I got the same question on surreal law. So I've gotten it twice in the same day. Hopefully, I'll answer. I can try to answer it better this time than I did this morning. Um, Sharia law is a comprehensive effort to regulate all of your conduct. And if that is put into the form of coercive government-enforced law, then it is as wrong as enforcing the law of the Roman Catholic Church would be, posing that on everybody. And so as libertarians, this whole argument was against legal moralism. And Sharia law is simply the modern incarnation of legal moralism. And, and what I said in my talk, and I will reiterate now, is that that version of Islam, not all versions of Islam, but that, uh, but that version of Islam simply has not been qualified the way all Western religions were qualified. Some versions of Islam have been. And that really separates radical Islam that justifies jihad from other forms of Islam that do not. Other forms of Islam simply accept the existence of civil society in which people have individual freedom of conscience. Freedom of conscience to be Christian, Jew, or Muslim. If you accept that basic principle, then at that point, Islam is as acceptable or compatible with liberalism as any other religion is. But if you vary it, if you, if you go back to the more fundamental notion of religion that Christianity once shared, but no longer shares, and you make it comprehensive and say everyone has to agree with this or we have an unjust and radically bad society, that is inconsistent with liberalism. And therefore, it's inconsistent with what makes Western societies Western and is to be opposed, I think, as an enemy or an, as, an, as an oppositional ideology of the very same kind that, this, that communism provided and still provides in some places. Uh, it's, a, it's a comprehensive... I think communism is really nothing more than a secular form of religion anyway. So it just doesn't have God, but it has everything else. Um, and so it's really no different in that respect than Islam. They're both radical ideology, radical Islam. That there's no, they're both radical ideologies that attempt to impose their will on everyone, which is inconsistent with the liberal approach to religious toleration that is what got liberalism off the ground in the first place. Yes. Thank you very much. My name is Brandon Nates from Colorado Christian University. And for all you libertarians in the room, if you want to see how drug legalization works, you can come over and see our mountains on our weed. Um, so my question is, um, as a person who does not consider himself a libertarian yet, I know, gasp, um, I have a question on two types of um, legislation to govern society. The first type is stopping activities that are not coercive, i.e. not crimes, but that are dangerous. For example, in Colorado, um, during drought seasons, we prohibit the use of fireworks during the 4th of July. We have increased regulations on fire um, in general. And that is not stopping arson as a crime, but it is stopping non-coercive behaviors that could be dangerous. That's the first thing I have a question on from a libertarian perspective. Second question is, what about activities by the government that are um, not stopping crimes and that are not trying to promote um, a type of morality, because I thought you were spot on on that, but that are useful. For example, the Constitution allowing us to create some roads and post offices through the use of tax dollars. They're not stopping crimes, and they're trying to enforce morality, but they're providing some sort of public good. So on those two um, issues of dangerous activities and public goods, how would a libertarian deal with those, and are either of those allowable under a libertarian paradigm? Thanks. Well, these are Two very fundamental and excellent questions. I want to begin, preface it by saying that libertarians, are, there is no monolithic libertarian position. And libertarian advocates that you may meet act as though there is. And they have it. 
whatever that is. And so um, it's my experience that there is a core about which libertarians agree, but there's a whole lot of stuff about which libertarians disagree, and if you get them in a room together, you will hear what their disagreements are. So I can't speak for all libertarians, and I can't speak for libertarianism. I can speak for myself, or I can report to you what other people think about some of these issues. Um, so letting, getting back to the first issue, um, there are libertarians who attempt to push all the way to the point that until an actual... Um, rights violation or, or an actual boundary crossing has taken place where, you, where a harm has occurred, um, uh, you can't do anything to stop it. I think most libertarians accept, at least if they don't, they ought to accept, that there is a power, a justified power of what you might call regulation. Uh, it's what I call regulation. Regulation is, takes the following form. If you want to do X, here is how you must do it. And the justification for that is the prevention of rights violations. This is where prevention comes in um, from happening. Let me give you an example. Um, and again, I'm, not, I'm speaking here only for myself. I am not speaking for all libertarians or libertarianism in general, just me. There's a difference between, let's say, you could rely entirely on a torts system to um, compensate people who have been injured as a result of improperly designed buildings. Like, for example, buildings who have railings that are too low so that people fall off of a building because the railing was designed negligently or too low. And then if they fall off and they get killed or they get paralyzed or they get injured, they can sue. Well, every libertarian would agree with that as an actionable crime. An actionable, not crime, but a, a tort or something that you could, act, you, could, you, could, you could make legal sanctions. Then the issue is, is it also appropriate to prevent that from happening in the first place. Because by the time it happens, you've already been paralyzed, you've already been killed, you've already been injured. Is it appropriate to prevent that from happening by, by specifying that the railing on a balcony should be at least so many inches? Because by doing that, you are no longer acting negligently in advance of doing anything at all. I think that that's okay. I think that's as long as those regulations are reasonable in the sense that they are related to the prevention of rights violations in the future, then they are as morally obligatory as the actual don't hit somebody in the head is. So I would allow for the reasonable regulation of liberty to prevent violations from happening. We see this in bodies of law that libertarians have no problems with, like, for example, the law of estates. One of the, if you want to make a will, here's how you make it. One of the things that you have to have is you have to have a certain number of witnesses. Why do you have to certain? One is not enough. Usually you have to have two or three. Why do you have to have more than one? Because you want to prevent fraud from happening. Does that mean that fraud will happen whenever you have one witness? No. But we require two or three witnesses because we're concerned about the problem of fraud. We don't want to require too many because that will make making wills too difficult. So that is to prevent something from happening. The law of contracts which specifies when contracts are made. I'm a contracts professor before I'm a con law professor. That stipulates the different things you have to do in order to make a contract, including in some states, some contracts have to be in writing to be enforced because we're concerned about false positive. We're concerned about falsely claiming people have agreed to do something when there's not an insufficient, where it's just your word against mine. In principle, that could be a contract. But in practice, in order to prevent false claims from taking place, these things should be in writing. And so there is something, and there has been since 1677, a statute called the Statute of Frauds in existence in England and in every jurisdiction of the United States, which stipulates that, stipulates that with respect to some agreements, and it says agreements over a certain amount, agreements that are going to take certain times to, uh, to perform, 
Uh, with respect to some agreements, they have to be put in writing. Again, that's a regulation in advance of action to prevent a rights violation from happening. But the ultimate thing that you're concerned about is a rights violation happening. So regulations are not appropriate if they are not means to preventing a rights violation, if they are means to, for example, achieving social justice, or if they are means to achieving ethical behavior, let's say. And so the same argument can be again made in Colorado about whether you know, driving under the influence should be against the law or not, before you've actually had an accident. I just was at Freedom Fest, and um, I was the moderator of a program uh, does anybody remember who I was on the program with, uh, they, who, was, who was talking about junk driving laws? It's a, he's a famous libertarian, actually, and I'm just, he has a bow tie. Yeah, Jeffrey Tucker, right. Thank you, thank you. I'm bad at names. So he gave a very moving uh, uh, description of how you ought, they're against drunk driving laws. Now, why would drunk driving laws considered to be reasonable by most people, by most libertarians? Because if you drive when you're intoxicated, then you are sufficiently impaired that you can't operate a motor vehicle. You have a 3,000-pound thing going down the street that could do serious damage. And so in advance of you doing the damage, you should be stopped from engaging in this risky activity. He argues against this. Now, I think part of the reason why he argues against this is because he thinks that the connection between being inebriated under the influence, especially at the levels of inebriation that the current government is, 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 is citing you for, simply is not really reasonably related to the, the safe operation of a motor vehicle. As my dad used to say when, I was, uh, um, when he would hear a statistic about how many uh, uh, motor vehicle accidents involve people who are dri driving under the influence or with alcohol, he would say, well, you only weigh that meaningful statistic if you tell me how many people are on the road driving with alcohol. For all I know, people who are driving with alcohol are actually getting into accidents less frequently than people who are not. If 60% of the people have alcohol in their system and 50% of the accidents involve alcohol, then people who are under the influence are actually driving more cautiously and avoiding accidents. And in fact, when I was a Cook County State's Attorney, there was a bar located on the block over from the next block over from the criminal courthouse at 26th in California, which was only open, was open to the public during the day and only open to court personnel at night. You had to go in the back door and you had all the prosecutors and defense attorneys and judges and bailiffs <laughs> and uh, court reporters and everybody just getting drunk as can be um, before they got in their cars and drove home. This was the way things were done in the, in the 70s, in the bad old 70s before Mothers Against Drunk Driving uh, started being successful politically. All right, so that's the answer to the regulation question. That's not the answer. It is a possible answer. There's a, preventing rights violations is something that might be a, permissible. But a lot, there's a lot of problems with it, too. Um, and I just mentioned the Jeffrey Tucker example of, uh, of a problem with it. The second question was about what? Public goods. Public goods. Well, there are libertarians disagree about public goods as well. Uh, there are a lot of libertarians, like Richard Epstein, for example, who strongly believe that public goods need to be provided coercively by the state. Then there are libertarians like me. I, I haven't actually haven't written much about this, so I don't, I'm not committed that strongly to it, but I'm skeptical. I'm very skeptical about whether it's necessary to provide public goods. Usually, most public goods, so-called public goods, have been provided throughout history without government providing them. And the only reason economists imagine they can't be is because economists lack imagination about how, they're, they're, they may be great as economists, but they're not wonderful at figuring out how to do things in reality. And in fact, most of the problems, including lighthouses, that have been postulated as, posited as public goods in, historically have been provided privately without the need for government intervention, and in which case there is no justified exception to that. But I will say that constitutionally, um, 
you know, Congress has certain powers to do certain things that are not libertarian, uh, that may or may not be libertarian, and that's just what the Constitution says. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, Dan McGuire, former Californian. Um, I want to get into the uh, railing. I, I don't mind former Californians as long as they don't take their form of government with them and pollute, <laughs> and pollute the jurisdictions they move not. to. That's the problem with former Californians. I want to ask about the railing building code example. I, I, when you got up, I was afraid of that. Yeah. So my town doesn't have a building inspector, and any time um, some, uh, somebody in the building trades comes to my house, they mention that fact because the step into my house is slightly taller than what the building code would say. And um, so would it be acceptable um, to have the owner of the house sort of informed of any, you know, who wants a lower railing to, to accept the liability in question and, and say to the builder and or architect, whatever, uh, I know I'm violating whatever the, the guidelines are, but I want it and I will accept the, the risk. Well, I mean, look, this is a matter, this is a judgment call, but the problem is that there are third, innocent third parties who are going to be invited onto the property and who are not going to have the opportunity to be put on notice of this and to consent to it and who could fall off and they're not you, but they're somebody else. And those buildings are going to exist. And then you'll sell the building to somebody else. And they may or may not know about the condition. And so there, there is a bit of a problem. But even Jeffrey Tucker said in his own, I mean, I, he was giving the talk. I was just moderating. But even he said that there is this town, there's this area, this big, big area in Atlanta, which has a name that I forget, which is all privately owned. And they actually have a ruling rule there that you can't smoke in that area and you can't do all these different things. And he said, look, as a libertarian, I think private property is great and private property owners ought to be able to regulate it. So one of the solutions to the problem of appropriate regulation is increased privatization so that people with the proper incentives can actually be issue issuing these making these regulations of private property, like Disney regulates Disneyland. It's highly regulated. There's all kinds of regulations about what you can and cannot do in Disneyland. But they have an incentive to get those regulations right that is greater than the incentive the bureaucrats have to get the regulations right. Alejandro Salinas. I'm from Aurora, Illinois. Aurora, Illinois. Great. Um, my question pertains to the polycentric constitutional order. In uh, the early 2000s, a book came out, Jennifer Government, the premise of which is a futuristic society that completely abolishes taxation. Now, this is a form of anarcho-capitalism, and what ended up happening in the book... Shh, we don't use that word there. <laughs> There's no, no need to use that word. We can understand you perfectly well if you don't use that word. Go ahead. Well, what ended up happening was the, the market forces um, from uh, entire privatization uh, ended up becoming a, a monopoly. And this is one of the arguments uh, against a polycentric constitutional order. So I want to see um, w what's your take on that. And I um, think there's, there's a Perfectly good counter-argument to that. What's the name of the book that you're talking about? Jennifer Government. Jennifer? Yeah, yes. Um, in, in, the, in the book, uh, everyone's last name is the company that they work for. And it's called Jennifer Government. Yes. Huh, never heard of this. Well, actually, in my, at the end of my book, uh, The Structure of Liberty, I have a chapter on polycentric legal... I have a chapter on what, imagining what a polycentric legal order would look like. And in this 
imagining chapter is the closest I've ever, I mean, it is fiction, so I shouldn't say it's the closest I've ever written. It is the only time I've ever attempted to write fiction. Um, uh, I postulate that some uh, enforcement agent tries to become a monopoly. They try to take over. And they do it as cleverly as I think that they might try to do it. And then I postulate what happens in response when this happens. And, and it turns out that, you know, I argue that there's no guarantee that bad guys are not going to win. There's no guarantee in democracy that bad guys are not going to win. There's no guarantee in every other government that not, the bad guys are not going to win. Um, and so there's no guarantee in a polycentric legal order that bad guys are not going to win. But in the, in the story, I try to tell what resources the good people have at their disposal to fight the bad people, um, to prevent them from winning. And then I talk about how once it was discovered all the th- bad things the bad people were up to, after that they, they adopted new procedures and rules to try to prevent this from happening in the future. Um, disclosure rules. And, and for example, uh, there couldn't be a corporate association between an enforcement agency and a law, a, a law enforcement agency and an adjudicative or judging agency that adjudicating guilt or innocence should be kept separate from actually enforcing the judgment because the provision of coercion is a different business than the provision of deciding rights claims. Those are really separate businesses, and they shouldn't be in the same company. They should be separate companies. I mean, that was a reform that came about as a result of this effort to take over. Um, so that's just my story. That I would, I, So I would come back. I would just counter Jennifer. Jennifer, what is it called? Jennifer Government. Jennifer Government with my own story of um, the polycentric legal order. I, had, I can't remember now the names of the characters. I have names of companies in my story as well as to what would happen. But look, again, this is something reason why I'm such a strong proponent of the right to keep and bear arms. It's not because I think that as individuals that we are capable of going up against a modern organized army per se... I just think that is, in, and therefore protect us from tyranny directly in that kind of way. But I do think that it's certainly been true uh, throughout history, and it's true today that counter that insurgencies um, uh, can resist organized armies if done cleverly and properly. But they need the means at their disposal, and having a dispersal of weapons, uh, the way we have in this country, is conducive to that. Um, and the Jews in Europe would have been better off if there had been more highly dispersed weaponry available to them uh, to use when the time came, when push came to shove, and they, they were desperate to get their hands on weapons, and they got their hands on a few weapons. Um, but, uh, but they would have been better off with more weapons in order to protect themselves. Would that have been any guarantee that the, the ultimate terrible stuff wouldn't have happened? No, but it, no guarantee. there are no guarantees in life, and it would have inflicted a higher cost on those who were trying to... Uh, to uh, murder them and annihilate them. Okay. Uh, Dan from Illinois. Go, go, went from California to Illinois, okay. kind of like from one bad state to another. <laughs> and, I, and I speak as a, as a former Illini, right? During your lectures... But one democratic state to another. Go ahead. Sorry. During your lectures and in your books, uh, you argue for uh, certain positions on what the, how the Constitution should be interpreted. However, uh, in reading uh, Tim Sandifer's book, in his latest edition, he discusses what Arizona has done to, I don't know if you've read it, but to limit regulations uh, by municipalities which reduce the value of private property. 
that is not for the health and safety. Do you know of statutes that you would suggest to advance your interpretation of the Constitution? Uh, not really off the top of my head. I, mean, I, I know and I have a very high regard for Tim. Um, he litigates in these areas, uh, and originally for the Pacific Legal Foundation, now for the Goldwater Institute, where he's the head of their litigation outfit. Um, so I would, I, it's nice to hear that he's talking about that, but I don't, I don't have a statutory reform in mind. Okay. I do recommend Tim Sandifer's books, though. So, and I've had him speak at my seminar, Recent Books on the Constitution at Georgetown, um, where I assigned six books for my seminar students to read in one semester, and we invite the authors in of those six books. We spend two weeks on each book, and the author comes in during the second week, and I've had Tim come in and talk about uh, his book. So what is the legal argument for cover damages, and why can't you know, private individuals just create, you know, within, within their contract, um, cover damages? Why does that act? What do you mean by cover damages? As in, I know in tort law, um, I think something about cover damages where if, if we go into a contract and I pay you money for, um, for like 50 apples or something, and you have not given me those apples by, this, by the time that I asked for, and if I buy those 50 apples from someone else. To damage the cost, to, co to cover the cost of cover. Right. What are you talking about? Okay. Right. Why is that, what's the legal argument for that being, um, for that being enacted? for everyone. Does that make sense? Well, now I know what you mean by cover damages. Cover damages are the price it takes to obtain what's called cover, which means obtain the, the same services from another party. This right. is for the benefit. You know what it is. This yes. is for the benefit of everybody else. But I don't understand what your question about cover damages is. Oh, what's the legal argument for having that? For having it? Yeah. Well, the legal argument for having it is that's what it, would that's what it takes to make you whole. That's, the, that's what, it, you know, if, if the purpose of compensation or restitution is to make you whole as a result of having had your rights violated, uh, the way to make you whole is to allow you to seek out alternate sources of supply and to pay you for that. Now, the argument against this is that the cost of cover, I mean, this is getting into the weeds here with contract law theory, but I, you know, just... Just sort of tune in like your observers here for a minute, like, or tune out as you wish. Time to check Twitter. Time to check Twitter. Um, so the, uh, it might be that the reason why the other party has breached the contract with you is because the thing that he's about to supply you has become extremely rare and valuable. So he now can find a better market for it elsewhere, and now he doesn't want to give it to you. And if you are to try to get it elsewhere, it's going to cost you a fortune. So why should he have to, you know, so... Um, Maybe he should pay you some lesser amount, the amount it costs you. Some, maybe you're injured or something like that, and you don't really need this good. But I'll, let's say you lose a profit as a result of not getting this thing. We'll pay you the lost profit of your, of your transaction. We're not going to pay you for the extreme amount it was going to cost you to get elsewhere. That's the argument for not giving cover damages if, in fact, it can be ascertained what your actual loss of profit was, and it's less than that. My view of this is, first of all, you can see how complicated this stuff gets really quickly, right? Um, but, and how libertarian theory can't answer all these questions. But my own approach to this is that um, because, legal, because the, other, the breaching party as well as the judges don't really know for sure what the opportunity costs are of these people, I would give people cover damages. And if it's inefficient, 
for them to actually buy the goods elsewhere, they won't buy them. And if they don't buy them, then no inefficient distribution of resources is going to take place. If they have the money, they'll keep the money. If they actually really need the good from the third party, then they'll spend the money to get the good. And we'll only we'll learn that from when you give them the big check, do they go out and cover or do they not go out and cover? In which case, you do have a redistribution from the contract breaker to the, part, the victim of the breach. Um, and maybe that enriches the victim of the breach. But as between the person who broke the contract and the person who uh, is the victim, I think I'm not, I'm, not that I'm not that unhappy that the victim gets increased compensation. But no economically inefficient purchase of goods is going to happen unless the victim actually wants those goods at a high price and then will use the money you give them to buy those goods. Sorry, I mean, actually, trying to pick up in the middle of that argument was like hard for me because I'm not thinking of contract law at the moment. Yes, Larry sir. Dennis, Portlandia. Okay. I want to thank you for all your fabulous presentations. Thank you. And ask you where we can, what's the best source for your notes today? What book or chapter or? Well, this is based on uh, the appendix uh, to The Structure of Liberty, the new edition of The Structure of Liberty that came out in 2013, published by Oxford Press, in a very affordably priced paperback edition, which some of, there were a few editions available out here. And so the entire modesty of libertari uh, libertarianism is available there. Another version of it is available for free in the Chapman Law Review. Um, so if you don't want to buy the book, you can just buy that part. And uh, I think you might be able to actually find that on randybarnett.com, where all of my articles are available. And so uh, when you go to randybarnett.com, you'll see in the left column, there are articles before 2000 and articles after 2000. And the articles before 2000 clicks through to a database. And the articles after 2000 clicks through to the Georgetown website itself that that, that archives all of the articles of Georgetown professors. And so um, they, they keep the library, this really saved us, those of us who want to make our stuff available online, a lot of trouble because the library keeps this stuff pretty current. So pretty much everything that I've published that's a scholarly nature, not my op-eds and stuff, is available uh, via the Georgetown website, and you can get to it via randybarnett.com. Um, so that's one way of reaching me, uh, looking at randybarnett.com. The other way to follow me is on Twitter, Randy e. Bar at Randy E. Barnett. Uh, some of you, I think, followed me after the last couple of days. And you're going to find um, – it's, it's, I'm not sure I should be doing Twitter, but I am. And I, and, I don't advi and I don't advise the young people in the room to do Twitter. I think it's good to follow people, but I, don't, I wouldn't advise tweeting very much. Um, but by the time you get to – the, the older people in the room, you can do Twitter all you want because you know, what do you got to lose, you know? <laughs> so I want to thank all of you guys uh, uh, for being so attentive. And at the end of, the, at the end of your long ordeal, uh, I'm sure you're going to get a diploma when you're done, right? Where you're going to you'll be a... You'll, you're, you're going, to be a certified, you're going to be a certifiable libertarian when you're done. And it was a great pleasure to meet all of you, and I wish you a good time. <laughs>